This morning's sermon passage is Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So now, Father, a room filled with former enemies is coming to your table. And Lord, we're coming to feast on your word. We're coming to be filled with your grace. We're coming to be overwhelmed with your mercy. We're coming to have our minds and our hearts and our affections recalibrated to your goodness, recalibrated to your mercy. But I pray for all the people within the hearing of this service to meet Jesus, to be delivered, to be forgiven, to be accepted, to be loved, to be cared for. And I pray for all those who believe to feel forgiven, to feel loved, to feel cared for, to feel that you are with us and that you are good And I pray that all of us would be led to worship you this morning. That some of us would learn to worship you this morning. So Spirit of God, we believe that you wrote these words in Psalm 150. And we believe that you can help us to understand them. And help us to believe them. And help us to truly hear them. And so Lord, I'm praying that you would do that by your Spirit. Praying that all barriers would be removed, and I'm praying that you would work mightily and in power. And we pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for worshiping with us this morning. If you haven't already, I would invite you to take your Bible or one of the ones under the seat in front of you and turn to Psalm 150. And here at Redeemer, We've been working through some of the Psalms, and today is actually, we're going to conclude this series uh, in the Psalms. And our sermon this morning is entitled, Our Call to Worship. Our Call to Worship. If you follow along carefully, you would note that every week we begin our worship service with a call to worship. Perhaps you've, you've wondered why, but it's there Because God, throughout the scriptures, is inviting his people to do what we were created to do, which is to express our great appreciation and love for who he is and for what he has done. And so each week we begin our gathering with a call to worship because we know that often we forget how great God is. And we know that we are prone to forget how 
good God is, and we know that we're prone to be distracted from how worthy of our worship and praise that he is. And so we begin each week with a call to worship as a way to say, remember God. Remember his goodness. Remember his mercy. Remember his answers to your prayers. Remember the salvation that you carry. And Psalm 150 is a big corporate, and by corporate I mean to the people of God. It's an us passage, not a me passage. It's a big corporate invitation to worship God freely for the good of our souls and for the glory of his name. So, to just boil it down as tightly as I can, Psalm 150 says this, the God who created you is inviting you to come with all of his people into his presence to cry out to him in remembering his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his power, and his strength for your good and for his glory. So here's what I'm saying. We need the gathering of the church to stir our hearts to worship God. We need the gathering of brothers and sisters in the name of Jesus to re Focus our attention on the goodness and the greatness of God. Ultimately, this is the question that Psalm 150 answers for us to put it into modern lingo. Why do we do what we do on Sundays? Why are we here right now? Why are you going to listen to me talk for 30 plus minutes? Why do we just sing four songs and have two more to come? Why do we pray? Why do we open the scripture and close our mouths and listen to it? Ultimately, Psalm 150 is intended to answer the question of why does the church do what the church does? I mean, don't we realize that technology has changed things? I mean, why don't we just make a playlist and record the team and then record my sermon and send it out for you to listen to when it's convenient. Or even better, why not make a playlist of better musicians and pick a better preacher and just disseminate it over Facebook for you to consume at your leisure? Why? Because God has always worked through the gathering of his people to reorient our souls to him. I'm here to say that every single one of you, whether you've been a Christian longer than I'm alive, or whether you're here today not believing anything about Jesus to be true, what every single one of us needs is to gather with the people of God in the name of Jesus to have our minds and our hearts and our souls reoriented to God's goodness, God's greatness, God's mercy, and For some of us, overly introverted, unexpressive, curmudgeonly people be forced to emote because emoting is good. I said that. And I guess you get to hold me to that. I want us to look at the psalm because that all sounds really good if it's true, but if it's not true, you shouldn't believe it. So let's look at Psalm 150 and let's see if that's what's actually being said. 
So note-taking, friends, the first point is worship. Worship. I said that Psalm 150 is an invitation to worship. Worship, rightly understood, simply means expressing worth, adoration, praise, and devotion. Worship means expressing worth, adoration, praise, and devotion. Do I have any music fans here? Music fans? So when you go to your favorite concert and, and you are moved to sing along, to clap, to delight in what's happening on the stage, you know the feeling, music people? That is an act of worship. So you know how to worship. Do I have any Kentucky football fans here? Kentucky football fans? Last night, for the first time in 30-something years, you got to worship. (laughs) That was for you, Katie. We've been talking about this out in the hallway here. Okay. But you know the feeling. You're, You're sitting quietly in front of a TV holding a beverage, and then before you know it, you've jumped in the air, and you've flung liquid all over your living room, and you've awakened your kids. Do you know that feeling? Kentucky fans, you knew it last night. That's worship. Foodies, foodies, fellow foodies. That's right. Thank you, Tim. There's more here, I know. But you sit down over an overly priced plate of food that's called decoratively plated, just to mean we can give you less of it. And you take a bite, and as as the food flows over your taste buds and you can feel the hints of your favorite ingredients and you celebrate the genius of the chef, you know the feeling? That's worship. That's worship. And I'm not necessarily saying any of those things are sinful. I actually love sports, love music, and love food. I'll go celebrate with you in all three rounds. About one o'clock today if you want to take me, okay? But the point is, we all know how to worship, and we all worship often. The question is not, do we worship, or if we worship, or really even when we worship. The question is who we worship, and will we give to God the same and even more devotion, adoration, joy, expression, and praise that we give to everything else that we love in the world? That is the question. Husbands, I would encourage you to value and express your value to your wives. Wives, I would encourage you, and right now it doesn't count, I would encourage you to value and express your value to your husbands. Parents, I would encourage you to express, to value and express your appreciation to your children. And children, I would encourage you to value and express your appreciation to your parents. Friends, I would encourage you to value and express your appreciation to your friends. I would encourage all of us to be free to give praise where praise is due. And then to give above all of that to God the praise that he is due. So I think when, the, when pastors like me get up and talk about worship, there's a couple like pits we can fall in. And one is the, like, I don't know how pit. And that's just a lie because we all worship all the time. 
The question is learning to worship God. And the other pit is the belief that worship is just this formal thing that can only happen when, when we sing and dance here. Like, no Dan, no worship, right? Or no preacher, no worship. So worship is the act of expressing worth, expressing adoration, expressing devotion, expressing praise to God for who He is and for what He has done. Psalm 150 calls this praise. Praise. So if one writing method is to use repetition to drive home a point, you know what I mean? Like the more times something appears, the more it must be the point. I'm going to reread Psalm 150, and I want you to count the number of times that the word praise is used. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the trumpet sound. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. I need another hand. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Six verses, 12 imperatives. Every time the imperative is praise. It's worship. It seems that the psalmist is saying it would be the will of God for the people of God to be found worshiping God for who he is and what he has done. Can you at least grant me that if repetition means anything, the takeaway from this psalm is to be found worshiping God? Good. Next, ready to go home? So this psalm is a cause, invitation to worship God. And I'd also encourage you to note that the tone of this psalm is emotive. It's exuberant. It's joyful. It is expressed. It is worship that is expressed. I think that's what's going on with in the sanctuary, in the mighty heavens. The trumpet, the lute. The harp, the tambourine, the dance, the strings, the pipe, the cymbals, the loud clashing cymbals with everything that has breath. What's going on is a call to be found expressing exuberantly and joyfully and prayerfully and confidently worship of to God for who he is and what he has done. What we're being told is not just to think worshipful thoughts, but to let them out. Express them. So, this passage is calling upon, inviting, and challenging everyone to offer to God appropriate worship. Now, perhaps you are sitting there and you're saying, but I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to give to God praise that is appropriate. This psalm tells us in verse 2. First, it tells us to praise Him for His mighty deeds. And second, it tells us to praise Him according to his excellent greatness. So we're told to praise God for his mighty deeds, and we're told to praise God for his excellent 
greatness. And so to put that into the language that I commonly use, what we're being told is to praise God for who he is and to praise God for what he has done. So the content and the source of our worship is who God is and what God has done. So I would like to pause here for a minute and give you some very tangible handles on understanding who God is and what he has done. So let's start on who God is. If you were to take all of the Bible and try to condense it down, one helpful way to condense the Bible down is it begins by telling us that God is creator. God is creator. Meaning, everything that exists was created by God at the word of his power. So God is creator. If it exists, God created it. That's who he is. Second, the scripture tells us that God is sustainer. Meaning that if it has life, God is sustaining its life. So everything that has breath is going to be told to praise the Lord because God has created it, God is sustaining it. Scripture tells us that God is Redeemer. This creation that was sustained by God rebelled against God, even though God said, Don't rebel, and if you rebel, death will come. And what the scripture tells us is that rather than giving death for the first sin, God promised redemption through his son, Jesus. So what the Bible tells us is God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to, at great cost to himself, pay the penalty for sin, bear the wrath of sin, and purchase our acceptance as God's children and into his presence. So God is Redeemer. If you know Christ, if you have professed faith in Christ, if you have been delivered from your sins, God is your Redeemer. He is the only Redeemer. He is the only hope. So God is Redeemer. The Bible also tells us, that God will return to make all things new. And so we might say God is the consummator, meaning he is going to come back and he is going to make all things new. He is going to right all wrongs. He is going to establish an eternal kingdom whereby he reigns over his people. Jesus, excuse me, God has revealed himself as a creator and a sustainer and a redeemer and the one who will build an eternal kingdom that lasts forever. So the scripture tells us to praise God for his excellent greatness. Beyond that, the scripture tells us that God is holy. The scripture tells us that God is just. The scripture tells us that God is merciful. The scripture tells us that God 
is perfect and without error. The scripture tells us that God is in control of his world. The scripture tells us that God is powerful. Our worship is fueled by the excellent greatness of who God is. And we can open our Bibles and we can turn to any page and we can see testimony of who God is and and that God is worthy of our worship. Second, we're told that God is to be praised for his mighty deeds. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Well, what are his mighty deeds? They're the activities of his character. They're the activities of his character. When God lives out his character into his world, these actions are his mighty deeds that are worthy of being praised. Somebody in the back, if I could get you to turn the air down a couple degrees, that'd be really helpful. Anybody in here besides me hot? Hot? Thank you. I got three. For the sake of the three of us, if you could turn that down, that'd be great. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeremy for the win. There we go. So very simply, what are God's mighty deeds? This book is filled with page after page after page of God's mighty deeds for which he is to be praised. Genesis 1, he created everything. The first five books of the Bible, God built a people, God delivered a people, God kept his word to his people, and these are his acts for which he is to be praised and worshipped. God promised a deliverer, and then ultimately God sent his son Jesus to deliver. Jesus promised that when he died, he would rise again, and ultimately he rose again. Jesus went away and promised that he would be with us and that he would reign at the right hand of the Father. And he indeed is doing it. Jesus promised that he would come again. And indeed, he is going to. And that's just kind of on the big level of the mighty acts of God. But every one of us exists. We were created by a mighty act of God. Every one of us who has children has experienced A mighty act of God. Every one of us who has repented of our sin and been forgiven of our sin has experienced a mighty act of God. Every one of us who's been sustained through hardship and difficulty and brokenness has experienced a mighty act of God. Every one of us who has opened the scripture and read it and believed it and repented and followed after the Lord has experienced a mighty act of God. Every one of us who has loved our neighbor as ourself for the glory of Jesus has experienced a mighty act of God wrought by the Holy Spirit. Every one of us who has loved our spouses well or loved our neighbor well or loved our roommate well for the glory of Jesus, has experienced a mighty act of God. Every one of us who has sinned against someone and come back in repentance to seek reconciliation has experienced a mighty act of God. Not to mention, you've breathed 35 breaths of God's mighty 
perseverance of your life since I've been given this one point. All around, our lives are tangibly filled with mighty acts of God. And it goes deeper than that. Have you prayed earnestly for the Lord to do something in your life and he's done it? Mighty act of God. Have you prayed for God to give you wisdom about a tough decision and he has led you clearly? Mighty act of God. Have you prayed, parents of multiple children, that the Lord would just let you get to midnight without killing someone? (laughs) And the Spirit of God has helped you? Mighty act of God. That's right. I think you get the point that I'm trying to make. Our lives are inundated with mighty acts of God. The problem is not God's lack of mighty acts. The problem is our ability to see them and receive them as mighty acts intended for our good and intended for his glory. So this passage is an invitation to worship. It's an invitation to be found worshiping God freely. It's an invitation to be pursuing God In all things, it's an invitation to make the God connection and express his greatness and our appreciation and our thankfulness for his greatness in all things. And the scripture says we do that through going to seek after his excellent greatness and praising him for it and going to look for his mighty deeds and praising him for it. This psalm says, everywhere and always be found worshiping. God. So that leads to the second point for those of you that, that want to take notes. And I promise it's, it's way shorter. But the second point is gathered and scattered. Gathered and scattered. This passage is an invitation. We've said throughout the Psalms, and I just want to say it again. Worship as guilt does not work. Worship as guilt does not work. So if you leave here today saying, I'm a terrible person, I don't worship, I need to worship, that's going to last until you get home and turn on the Titans game, and then that's going to be gone. Rather, what this passage invites us to do is to seek a big, huge, biblical vision of who God is and how he's invested in the life of his people corporately and individually and and connect our living to his goodness and his grace and his mercy in such a way that worship is what flows out of us. But what this passage makes abundantly clear is that God is intended to be worshiped in a gathering of his people so that when we are not in the gathering, our lives are filled with more worship of him. So look at verse one. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. So let's take those in reverse order. Where are God's mighty heavens? Everywhere. Where is God's sanctuary? where his people are gathered in the name of his son, Jesus. Now, for the Israelites reading this, 
their answer would have been gathered in his holy temple in the city of Jerusalem as appointed by God for the people who were awaiting the coming Messiah. But our answer is when God's people are gathered in the name of Jesus. Now that does lead to a bit of a philosophical question. If God's heavens are everywhere and God's sanctuary and always and God's sanctuary is temporary and local, why do we need both? Why say both? Does that make sense? Like if I just said, go out and enjoy grass. And then I said, go out and enjoy the grass of 177 Bonita Parkway. Why is the second command needed? Because the first command, go enjoy grass, covers the little area here and everywhere else, right? The second command is only needed if there's something unique about the grass at 177 Benita Parkway. By the way, some of you are looking at me. You're at 177 Benita Parkway, okay? <laughs> there's something unique about the grass at 177 Benita Parkway if we have to give both commands. Go and enjoy the grass and enjoy the grass at 177 Benita Parkway. Both commands are only needed if there's something unique about the grass at 177 Benita Parkway. So what we're being told in this psalm is go and be found praising the Lord in his heavens. That means everywhere and always be the people of God who were found extolling and telling and singing and beating drums and clanging cymbals and crying out freely the greatness and the goodness of God and worshiping him for who he is. But we're also told that when the people of God gather in the name of Jesus, there's something unique going on there and it's good for our souls to be a part of that worship as well. We need the gathering of the people is what we're being told in this psalm. That when we gather, there's something unique going on. Now, I want to be really clear. This town is filled with true churches. This town is filled with true churches where at their gatherings, this passage applies as well. So I am not in any way I'm not in any way trying to communicate that Redeemer's special, Redeemer's unique, and Redeemer's the only place where corporate worship of God can. I am not trying to communicate that at all. But what I'm saying is individuals need the gathered body of Christ for the gathered worship of Christ, which fuels our living when we're not in the gathered place. Does that make sense? We need both. So when we gather, we gather to sing because we are calling ourselves to see the greatness of God and express it. When we gather, we humble ourselves in prayer because we're trying to awaken ourselves to the fact that God is with us and God hears us and God cares about us and God will minister to us. When we gather, we open the Bible and we hear it to call ourselves to the fact that God speaks through his word and we need to be hearing from God's word. And when we gather, we end by sending ourselves out into the world as if to say God is now sending us out as ambassadors of God to call people to Jesus and live for his glory under his heavens. But the worship in the sanctuary and the worship in the heavens matter to God. And what God is saying is, church, we need our assembled worship together. The reason a podcast 
can't replace the gathering of the body of Christ is because you wouldn't be there with me. And I couldn't be stirred by your faith and you couldn't be stirred by my faith and I couldn't help you and you couldn't help me. That's why, assuming that because God said so is not enough. That's Hebrews 10, 26. But I'm trying to rationalize a little bit here. We need the gathering of the people for the purpose of worship. And some of you guys are going, dude, I just, I just don't get the singing thing, man. That just feels like so shallow and like i just, just not a singer. Fine. But I promise you that music stirs the affections in a way that monotone just doesn't. So for example, oh Dan, I'm going to mess with you. I'll put it back. You came from heaven's throne, acquainted with our sorrow, to trade the debt we owe, your suffering for our freedom. The Lamb of God in my place, your blood poured out, my sin erased. It was my death you died, I'm raised to life, hallelujah, the Lamb of God. That's true. How many of you were stirred by that? The point is that the Lord knows that music stirs the affections, and worship is to be expressed, and music helps with that. The Lord also knows that we need to be still before him so we can recognize that he's the Lord. And that's what prayer is. And the Lord knows that we need to have our mouths stopped so that we can hear his word and have his word spoken over us and to us and through us. But what happens when we gather is vital to the soul and it's vital to the glory of God in the world. Because not only is God glorified by what we say and what we sing and what we pray and how we receive his word, but this gathering is a testimony out there to the fact that we believe that God is worthy of such worship. There are so many other things you could be doing this morning. So many. And some of you wish I would shut up so you could go home and get back to that nap. But this gathering matters to God and it matters for our souls because we're called to be found praising him in his sanctuary. And I'm not saying that you have to be at church for worship to be valid, but what I am saying is that what happens when we're gathered in the name of Jesus awakens our souls. It attunes our souls to who God is. It attunes our souls to his greatness. It attunes our souls to his mercy. And it changes the way that we live the rest of when we are not gathered. And I would also argue that how you live when we're scattered how attuned you are to the greatness of God when we're not together under the heavens impacts what happens in here. So coming to the sanctuary, coming to the gathering filled with awe breeds more awe. Coming to the gathering filled with joy breeds more joy. Coming to the gathering filled with desperation breeds more desperation. Coming to the gathering so broken that you just need to be renewed in God's grace just a little says to the rest of us, it's okay to depend upon the Lord because he hears us. 
And so there's this thing where what happens in the sanctuary influences what happens under the heavens, and what happens under the heavens influences what happens in the sanctuary, and we need it all if we're to take Psalm 150 seriously, where everything that has breath praises the Lord. And I want to end by thinking of those who don't know the Lord, and thinking of those who don't worship the Lord, and thinking of those that maybe don't even know of his mighty deeds and don't know that his excellent, excuse me, don't know of his excellent greatness and don't know that his mighty deeds are upon them. I think, friends, there's a place for apologetics that's defending the faith. I think there's a place for philosophical arguments about the truthfulness of Christianity. I think there's a place for a lot of what we take out with us into the world, but I think what's going to be most attractive to the world are people who are evidently met by, transformed by, cared for, and loved by their God. Joy breeds joy, and joy is appealing. And desperation focused upon Christ and his deliverance is an act of faith that is also worship. And so what do we do with our disappointment? What do we do with our depression? What do we do with our grief? What do we do with our hurts? If we take them to God, crying out in desperation for him to work and believing that he will work, that is an act of worship that is appealing to the world. And so I want us to be a people who were filled with the joy of the knowledge of Christ such that it overflows from us and characterizes who we are in such a way that we remember His mighty deeds and we remember His greatness under the heavens and in the sanctuary and our lives are filled with joy. Friends, I want Redeemer to bear fruit. I want Redeemer to reach new people. I want the nations to be reached through Redeemer. I want our church to grow, but above all, that's all secondary. All of that is secondary to this. That the people that God has redeemed would have joy in Him, and that joy would bear fruit. And as that joy bears fruit, missions will be fruitful. And as that joy bears fruit, evangelism will be fruitful. And as that joy bears fruit, our lives will be transformed. Man, this room, if you're like me, you're too brainy, too thoughtful, too analytical to see the greatness of God all around you and delight in Him. So stay analytical, stay brainy, stay thoughtful, but be filled with the goodness and the greatness of God that's all around you in such a way that you're joyfully analytical and joyfully thoughtful and appealing to the world. I'm praying that. I think God wants that from us, and I think that's why we gather week after week. Our Father and our God, pray that you would work in this gathering. We pray that you would work through this message. Pray that you would work 
to do mighty things in this room today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we as the church take communion. And so Jesus gave to his children an act that we call communion or the Lord's Supper, a piece of bread and a cup. And the purpose of the bread and the purpose of the cup is to remember God's excellency and to remember his works among us. We're saying Christ died, Christ was broken, Christ's blood was spilled so that we could be worshipful children of God. So here at Redeemer, we would invite anyone who is a Christian, anyone who has professed your faith in Christ to yield your life for his glory. We would invite you to take this bread and take this cup with us. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would ask you to let the bread and the cup pass because this is a a declaration of faith in Jesus. But I would also say to you, today could be the day that you meet Christ and we would love to help you meet Christ. So if those who are serving would go ahead and come forward, we're gonna pass the bread, we're gonna pass the cup, we'll sing, I'll come back in a moment, we'll take them together.